This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Time Revisited, a memoir. And the author is Dorothy Jane Staples. And Dorothy joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Dorothy. Hi, how are you, Steve? First of all, happy birthday. Your birthday was just this past weekend. Yes, it was, and thank you very much. And you are at the great age of 92 and not stopping for anything. Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) That's the real, I guess that's the real story behind Dorothy Jane Staples. She's not stopping for anything. I, I think that's pretty much what I've written in my little notes here, that you keep on going, you keep on being optimistic, and you never stop till you make what your goal is. There you go. That's best advice for anyone at any age. Let me read what you've written about your book. You say, my book is the chronicle of my life from a small town girl to a successful businesswoman in a large metropolitan setting with all the strange and unusual events along the way. Well, you started out in a, I guess, a small, small town of with... Nine in your family, you have eight brothers and sisters, and why did you move to, where where was it, Asheville? Well, we lived on a farm, and my mother told my father that he was working, my father was a very hard worker, and she said, you're killing your children with overwork, we have to leave this farm and move somewhere else, and they moved to Asheville, which was a one street in the town with a few little side streets, and, uh, and bought a service station in this small town where there were no, uh, where there weren't, people didn't own cars then. And there, were, there was a, a usual, uh, once in a while there was a car passed through, and that was the, what the customers were. But they were the mechanics in town and had the service station and a little candy store, which I managed when I was 12 years old. So Asheville, Pennsylvania, is where is that near? Near Altoona, Pennsylvania. Altoona, right. Know where Altoona is? Do you know? I used to live in Erie, Pennsylvania, so I know Pennsylvania oh. fairly well. Well, Altoona is the railroad station, the railroad town. Okay. That's the horseshoe curve. Well, when you arrived there, you became really good friends with Betty Abel. And I just talked to her yesterday. <laughs> All these years. And she's 92 as well. 92. So you start out, your memories go all the way back to Asheville, Pennsylvania. How old were you when your father passed away? Uh, seven years old. My goodness. That must have been a very, very hard thing for the whole family, and especially for a young girl like you. 
Well, it was, but you know, we didn't quite understand it. We didn't, we didn't really understand the, the, that it was over, that it was done. At seven years old, at that time, uninformed, like as we were, uh, we thought my dad was taking a nap. Right, and somehow he would be back, huh? Right, right. Now you that you say that most of your mother's business attempts failed. What did she try to do? Well, as I said, there were no cars in the town to service. They bought a service station, and there was not enough uh, passing. Cars came in the middle of the night, and uh, and passing through from going uh, from one town to another. But we had a very small population, and so it was not a... My mother actually got under cars and inspected them. So how did she take care of this big family? Well, by hook or by crook, she bought... All through the book, you see where she bought one business after another, and the first thing we knew, we'd, one day I woke up and found out that we were moving, and I no one had ever told me. And we were moving to... Altoona, where my and my mother had a very good friend who was a judge, and he helped her to get compensation, which we did get until we were all 18 years old. And she was a lectioneer for him, standing up, going out, punch, standing on um, on baskets or whatever they could find to about the candidate that they want to be elected. Very involved in politics. Very involved. And uh, she went to fairs and took her homemade donuts and, and uh, chicken uh, uh, pies. She had, was famous for her chicken pies and homemade noodles. And um, there's a bit about my mother in the book that people will enjoy. So I guess you learned a lot from your mom. Oh, yes, I did. My mom would, when I was selected as the, as the person in a play, my mom sat with the books every day and went over the lines with me. She was a beautiful speaker. So you enjoyed that? You enjoyed being in the theater? Oh, I love a theater. I love it. I love to be, I love to act. I I actually nearly had a baby on stage, <laughs> my oh. sixth child. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> yes, you are the mother of seven children, and, and you have over 20 grandchildren, and probably uh, great-grandchildren as well. Well, and they're included in that, in that, that minute. That 26 includes great and grandchildren. Yep, steps, all kinds. Well, how did you... Uh, what just prompted you to write this book? Well, the way it started out was um, Bobby kept saying to me, Bobby's the youngest, kept saying to me, Mom, why don't you write a book? Why don't you tell the story, the story of our, how things started and your past and your mother's past and your father's past and tell, let us know so our children will know and their children will know. And don't, you're not, you're keeping it a secret. And he said this so long ago, he's now 50 years old. And, um, and I, I said, Bob, I don't have time. I'm, uh, I was in the business raising seven children 
running a business, doing theater work, <laughs> I didn't have time to do it. And so he bought me a blank book. And one day, when I retired at 85, I started to write down what he wanted me to do. And that's how it started. I want to make sure everyone heard that. You retired when you were 85. Right. <laughs> a lot of people think and, you're supposed to do that at 65, but uh, 85 was, your, was yours, and you're not retired now. No, and I continued, even when I retired, to handle all the accounts receivable and make the collections and the phone calls for accounts receivable. Well, you, you got into the display uh -huh. business, uh, store installations for displaying uh, garments, uh, clothing? Uh-huh. Uh -huh. And how, how, did that, how did all that happen, Dorothy? Well, my husband was a, a display manager of Sears Roebuck, and um, they, they went into a completely different type of merchandising, more modern than they had before, and my husband decided to leave Sears and open his own business. And because he had worked for a company that had a disc fixture company before he went to work at Sears. And um, that's where Nathan's was born when we, in 1952, I believe, we, I think it was, anyway, we bought uh, Nathan's from the owner who had passed, from the widow of the owner who had passed away. And added it to the little business that we had started before that. And so that's how we got into it, but he, that was his profession. Well, before you got into that very successful business, uh, you were also a chicken farmer. Well, I was a chicken farmer while we started the business. Oh, my goodness. A couple <laughs> businesses. So one, we had bought this. We had a beautiful little house that's on the cover of the book. And uh, my, my husband came home one night after we bought this little farm, three-acre farm, and came home with a whole box of boxes full of little one-day-old chickens. And I looked, he put them in my laundry, which was next to the kitchen, and I looked at him and I said, Bill, what are you going to do with these things? <laughs> he said, oh, we're going to, we have, we're going to raise them. We have eaters and we have... Um, chicken houses and, and roosts and everything we need. I says, yes, dear, but we don't have any electric in them. <laughs> so they can't, you can't turn on the heat. And little chickens die when they're a day old if they're in a cold place. And they're not going to stay in my laundry. And that was, I said, you better call your dad, who was wonderful to us, and Find out how fast you can electrify those chicken houses or 200 little baby chicks and their purchaser are going to be looking for a new home. And that's how I started. <laughs> <laughs> so I and guess he did it. And he did it. I was going to say, and I bet on, he did it. On Monday, we had, uh, we had electric and we had heat in the chicken house. And there are a lot of funny stories in the book about the chickens. Well, you have a very 
simple view of life, even though this simple phrase, this simple statement is very challenging, we've all heard it, but it sums up, sounds like your life. If you first don't succeed, try, try again, and persevere always. Well, that's, that's my code, and that's what I've taught. I have seven wonderful, wonderful children. I lost one, so I have six now. But uh, have, um, I, I have wonderful, wonderful children. So thank my lost my husband. Unfortunately, he passed away about 20 years ago. So I've been a widow all these years. And along the way, you've also been buying and selling real estate. Right. I, I think I bought close to 40 and bought and sold close to 40 properties that I didn't live in. And I bought about six other ones that I've lived in. So that was very uh, good for you to do that. And very good because I'm, I still have six condos in Brigantine. And you're also very involved in teaching students, I guess, about speech, right? About how to speak properly and how to speak speak effectively. And how to debate and um, and how to have poise. And they actually, colleges are very pleased when they see that on an application uh, because not enough schools do it. And it's always a... Uh, it's not on the curriculum generally, so it's not uh, all schools don't have it. But that's what I do, and I teach that uh, to sixth, seventh, and eighth graders. Well, tell us some favorite story about the theater. That seems like a love of yours. What was something that you're just so proud of? Something I'm proud of that I did in the theater. I spent most all my life either on the stage or properties or uh, prompting or something to do with theater. I was the president for two years, the vice president for two years. And um, I, my, the favorite story is when I got a call from a casting director and he said, I, and I was new to Wincote, Pennsylvania, so it was um, a shock to get this call. And he said, I understand you've just joined our group. And I said, yes, I've been in theater all my life. And he said, well, I would like to know if you would be interested in playing the part of a pregnant woman for the March play. So I believe it was the March play. And I said, oh, I can't be in it because I'm pregnant. I'd have to wait to be in a play after my baby's born. Oh, he said, well, that's what I want. I want a <laughs> pregnant woman in the play. I want you to be very pregnant. And I said, well, I'm very pregnant. He said, and then I said, what would happen if I fell, uh, what would happen if I um, had the baby on the stage? He says, well, what would happen if the, uh, if the actress, the star, uh, fell down the cellar steps? The play would not go on. <laughs> and that was the answer. So he said, ask your gynecologist. And I did. And, um, when I, and he said, oh, and I said, do you think I could do it? He said, sure, by all means do it. So 
uh, I was in the play, and that the there's always a curtain call at the end in these community theaters, and I had the longest lines of any of the stars that were in the play because they wanted to know if it was real or not. <laughs> and it turned out that I had the baby the next day. Wow. Well, what a memory, and congratulations. Also, congratulations in May of 2004. You were included in the 50 Best Women in Business in the Eastern Pennsylvania Business Journal. So you've been recognized throughout your life and been very successful in a a variety of ventures. So thank you. Thank you so much, Dorothy, for being with us. Please tell us how to get your book. I have a typed-up sheet of paper, which I'm sending to my friends and which went out to Hundreds of my associates in the business world have already, and it says, I am to be interviewed about my book by Steve Jorgensen on an Internet radio station. The interview will be aired on Saturday, October 9, 2010, from 4 o'clock to 5 p.m. You will be able to listen to at www.toganet.com. There is also an encore airing the following Thursday from 12 to 1 a.m. You can also listen to Achieve podcast at the Toganet.com website above. Also, if anyone is interested in purchasing the book, you can do it one of two ways through www.amazon.com or www.barnesandnoble.com and I have it signed, Jane Staples, and it went out to several hundred people. Well, thank you, Dorothy. Thank you so much for being on iUniverse Radio. Very interesting. Really enjoyed it. Well, I enjoyed it very much, too, Steve. And I look forward to listening in to some of your other programs. That was Dorothy Jane Staples. She is the author of her book, her, her autobiography, Time Revisited, a memoir. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Get ready for the Not-So-Soccer Mom, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central, on Toginet with Jill Hickey. You name it, from politics to pop culture to Jill's search for the perfect bronzer and chicken salad. The Not-So-Soccer Mom will weigh in on it all. The sentence, I have no opinion about that, is one that Jill has never uttered. In the early 90s, Jill finally decided to put her thoughts, opinions, mom advice, love of pop culture, hummus, and Starbucks, working out, cosmetic shopping, and politics into an actual website, and thus, NotSoSoccerMom.com was born. Shortly after her fourth child, a boy, Jerome, now she's really got tons of topics to share with you. This is Laugh Out Loud Funny, and we're not kidding. What's a loud Nebraska girl who lived in Little Rock for many years and now is up in the Northeast doing, chronicling her opinions on everything? The wheels aren't off yet, but it's close. It's the Not-So-Soccer Bomb with Jill Hickey. Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on toginet.com. Innovation and insight. Problems and solutions. Capitalizing on your ideas and efforts. That's all a part of Changing the World One Invention at a Time with Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 Central on toginet.com. Rick will be sharing stories of innovation, invention, inspiration, and overcoming obstacles with guests who have been there, done that, and are doing that. 
Rick will be asking the right questions, helping you identify the real problems, and showing you how to act on your ideas by increasing consumer confidence, and more importantly, increasing your confidence to act on your ideas. For even more information, go to thinktech, that's T-E-K, globally.com. Then join us as Rick and his guest teaches how to develop new ideas and create new products, new businesses, new jobs. And together, let's get our economy growing again. It's changing the world one invention at a time with author and inventor Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Just Give Your Head a Shake and Change Your Life for the Better. And the author, Cheryl Hitchcock. And Cheryl joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Cheryl. Hi, Stephen. Good to have you with us. A very important topic, and uh, you have solutions for people who just need to turn their lives around, uh, go down a different road, uh, change some things. And and you're going to explain to us uh, how to do that. But first, let me just read a couple things that you have written about your book just to give us an overview. You say this, this book will help you transform your life to one that you dream of having. It's an no-nonsense book with tried and true strategies that you can start using as soon as you read it. This book is life-changing. That's right. Well, and that's what you're all about, changing lives. Let's, let's talk about your background, Cheryl. Tell us what you've been doing these many years. Oh, well, for approximately the last 15 years, I've been working in the field of my education is around developmental disabilities, mental illness, and uh, addictions. And so I also have a forensic certification in high-risk sexual uh, deviance and anger management, in which gave me the opportunity to also work with the uh, criminally insane population. So I have worked with some of the highest risk, most marginalized people in society. And, um, you know, I've used some of these strategies with that, those populations, and they work great because stress is really high in those populations, and they're a catalyst um, to bringing on behavioral uh, problems. So. Um, what I've used and what I've experienced uh, work well and they work quickly if used uh, in the right way. So now I just work with, you know, everyday people who are encountering negative lifestyles and they have problems that they need to overcome that are causing them stress. And so I help them to turn that around. And I also help to raise their consciousness, uh, which will help them to manifest their, their ideal lives and bring about what they dream of. So. That's you, essentially what I do. I've also been studying many years with Buddhist monks, and that's where I bring in the spiritual component and the uh, consciousness-raising component of the work that I do. You have this background, as you just pointed out, uh, with some experiences with Buddhist monks that, I guess, really changed your life, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. 180. And it wasn't, you know, sort of that it's... Uh, I don't look at it as a, a sort of religion. I look at it as a spiritual um, sort of consciousness-raising philosophy that I use um, with people. So I take the, the strategies, uh, if you will, out of the Buddhist philosophies, and I use them with my clients to help them to overcome stress and to manifest or step into their greatness in their lives and to live their path. 
And as you say, this is not just a spiritual book. This is a book also a compilation of clinical counseling practices. So you're taking both, putting them together for the best possible good. That's right. That's right. And uh, as soon as I use the sort of consciousness raising or spiritual part with the therapeutic strategies, it just amplifies the outcomes, uh, you know, to a really, really great advantage for people, and that uh, helps them to move forward um, rather quickly. You want, you want everyone to understand that they are the only ones that can affect real positive change in their lives. Often people want somebody else to do it. That's right, and the thing is, is that we, you know, we overestimate um, our control over others, and we us- underestimate our control over ourselves. And the thing is, is that we're the only things, or people, or minds that we can control. We cannot control other people. People have free will. They are their own people. They are not possessions of others. So if we try to control them, then we just put, you know, force into play. Uh, which is negative and uh, counterbalanced. So we usually don't get the results that we seek. And you believe the only thing that we with ourselves. And you believe there's a real connection between the subconscious and the spirit of an individual. Well, yes, and we sometimes use those kinds of things: the subconscious mind and the spirit interchangeably. <clears throat> it is about the energy that guides us. It's about that non-tangible part of ourselves. Um, that actually sort of rules and governs and brings into our life the experiences uh, that we that we have, and um, there are kind of two parts of the mind: the conscious mind and the subconscious, if you will, or the spirit that that drives us. So I always say to people, you know, you know when you're driving and you're having a conversation, or you're playing with the radio, or <clears throat> excuse me, you're um, doing something else. While you're doing something else and you're distracted and your mind is on that other thing, who do you think's doing the driving of your car? Right? That's your spirit or your subconscious mind that's doing that. It's intangible. I mean, if I ask you to think of the mind, we think in pictures. What do you picture when I ask you to, to think of the mind? You may picture the brain. Right? Right. But mind is outside of the brain. It's the energy that drives us. Energy surrounds us. It surrounds every living thing. It works through us. It it brings things that are of like energy to us. And so that's what I get people to understand, and then I get them to understand how they use that energy to manifest what it is that they want in their lives. So we must change the perception we have of ourselves. That's right. And what we think we can do. Because we think with the ego mind that we can only do things that we're physically capable of right now or mentally capable of right now, but spirit has infinite possibilities. We can actually do and achieve everything uh, that we need to, and the tools and what we need to do that is already inside of us. We just have to become aware of the process that's inside us, and then we can guide it. Communication. Communication really affects how we are perceived by others, you write, and how, and you, we can change that. We can change how people see ourselves through how we communicate. Right. So if we communicate in a way that elicits defensiveness, then we will 
bring negative communication patterns and negative thoughts and feelings from others towards us. Right? If you've seen somebody who always negatively um, criticizes people or is, um, you know, not happy, I mean, you can tell in the way they communicate. When there are people who take ownership and responsibility for the way they think and feel and what they do, they uh, elicit that kind of conversation. And they also, you know, perform those communication skills, but they don't speak defensively. What I do is I teach people how to have enhanced communication so that they can understand people better, they can drive people towards them in the way that they communicate, and they can have the outcomes that they want. They can achieve what they want without ever having to say or do anything negatively in their communication. Give us some insight about stress and anxiety. That's one of your chapters of your book. Just give us some tips on how to deal with stress and anxiety. Well, stress and anxiety are they are sort of on the continuum of, of the same scale, anxiety being a little higher uh, than stress. But in stressful situations, you can look at the stressor. And the reason that it's stressing you out, so to speak, is because of a conditioned response that you have inside yourself based on a belief system that you learned probably many, many years ago. And so what I always ask people to do when they have stress or anxiety is to stop for a second, step outside of that a little bit, and say, you know, what can I do about this? Is this something that I have any control over? So if there's something that you can control about that stress, then do it. If there isn't, then you need to let that part go. Okay? With anxiety, I mean, when you have, um, I, and I'm talking a degree of, degree of almost having anxiety attacks, you need to stop and ground yourself in the present. Okay, so you need to understand that you are where you are at that moment, and you need to come back to the present moment. You need to see what's around you. Focus on that, because anxiety comes from thinking in the future. Okay? And when we think in the future, even if it's for a moment, we can create anxiety because we don't know what's going to happen. Okay? If you have these kind of stressors, I ask people to always challenge their thoughts. There's an inner critic that goes on in your mind and tells you to be anxious or fearful based on past uh, belief systems or experiences. And I always ask you now to challenge that. Is that happening right now? Is that true right now? You know, when you ask yourself those questions, when you see what you can control and what you can't control, then you are able to put that into perspective. You know, and it, it does ground you. It helps to ground you. It helps to bring you down into peace. There are also other things you can do if you're having a lot of really stressful anxiety at the moment and you start to have shallow or rapid breathing or sweating and that kind of stuff, and that is to breathe deeply. So if you take, you know, three or four cleansing breaths where you take a full inhalation, hold it for a few seconds, breathe out deeply and fully, a few times you can do that. You will also bring your respirations down. You will bring your heart rate down. You will be able to calm yourself. So those are a couple of the types of strategies that I use in my book, and they're very practical. They work really, really well, and they work really um, quickly. How do we find our spiritual center? Well, that is the, the energy, so to speak, that guides you. And when you want to tap into that, the best thing you can do is to still the mind because our conscious mind, you know, has an average of 60,000 thoughts a day. And, you know, we can't really tap into the spirit part of us 
when there's so much going on in the ego mind. It's distracting. It's, it stops us from being still, from really seeing things as we need to see them. So I always ask people to spend some time during the day, even if it's a few minutes at a time, to try to relax, turn off all the distractions, be by yourself, and just to calm the mind. So whether it's, you know, even if you're at your office, close the door, turn off all the distractions for a minute, and just concentrate, bring your awareness down to your breathing. That's the easiest way to do it. And just observe your breath. Don't add any dialogue to what's going on. Just observe your breath. Breathe deeply for a few breaths and then calm yourself. And that way at least you can, you know, sort of purge some of the thoughts that are rattling around in your head um, that stop you from actually being clear about what it is you need. I practice that. It's a type of meditation. There's also mindful meditation where you can concentrate on one thing and focus on that. But it's about clearing all the clutter out of your mind, focusing clearly and uh, like a laser focus. You can do that while you're doing anything during the day. But it's about getting rid of the junk that's upstairs in the, in the brain, in the mind, and uh, getting into a peaceful state. What does it mean by I, giving back? What do you mean by that? Giving back? It's very, very important to either pay forward your good abundance in life or give back to somebody or something um, because of the abundance that we receive. When energy flows, it flows more when it is directed outward as well. So when we want to bring good fortune and abundance into ourselves, we can align our energy to bring about what we need. But what we, the best thing to do and to keep it flowing is to also flow it outward to to others, whether it's uh, humankind or the animal kingdom or anything like that is to do work, good work and give back that which you have received. And it keeps the constant flow of energy alive. I like what one said about that. Giving starts the receiving process. Absolutely. And you give without any attachments. So what I always say, and it's part of the sort of the Buddhist mindset, is be open to everything and attach to nothing. So when you start by giving, you give without any strings attached. So there's no hopes that you will get something in return or, you know, that this will give you, score you brownie points somehow. You give exactly for the giving of it, for, you know, the, the good work that you're doing. And, you know, you will receive, you will receive something for it, and that's an internal sense of really a, a peaceful, well-being kind of state. Cheryl, we have about a minute. Uh, you say that we can live life to the fullest. Now, a lot of people would not have a clue of how to achieve that, but it can really happen, you're saying. Absolutely, and I do, and I was in a state long, a long time ago where I couldn't say that, uh, but I can now, and I've helped many other people to do that. And the fullest interpretation of life is, is what you dream of. What do you dream your fullest interpretation of life to be? And, you know, it's always our mind that shuts down the process and says things like we cannot achieve our fullest life. And whether that means just being surrounded by, you know, uh, love and kindness and great friends and wonderful family members and, and things like that, well, that's your expression of your fullest life, you know. And so it's about leading a, a positive, a healthier life 
as opposed to one that's filled with stress and negativity and, you know, ill will towards others. And it doesn't need to be that way. So the fullest expression of spirit, which is what we are first and foremost, is what I mean by living your fullest life. Cheryl, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can go online to Amazon.com, and you can order it there. You can order it through my website. Uh, it's IntegrityCounselingServices.com. You can also go to um, Chapters in Indigo in Canada, I believe Borders and Barnes and & Noble in the United States, and order it through there. And you can also, I believe, order it through iUniverse. I believe it's iUniverse.com. We want to thank so there are many ways to get the book. And uh, you know what? If you're having a problem, let me know. and Email me at Cheryl at IntegrityCounselingServices.com, and my assistant or myself will be able to direct you. Well, we want to thank you, Cheryl, for being on iUniverse Radio. And I want to thank you so much. I am very happy and grateful for the experience and to be able to be here today. Thanks, Stephen. That was Cheryl Hitchcock. She is the author of her book, Just Give Your Head a Shake and change your life for the better. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriended is on Toginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts, Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The girlfriended principle was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Parting, a story of West Point on the eve of the Civil War. And the author is Richard Adams, and Rich joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Rich. 
Hi, Steve. It's good to be with you. Good to be with you. Now, first of all, let me read a couple of things that you have written about your book just to set the stage for our discussion, for all our listeners. You say, The Parting is a story that brings American history to life and in the process makes you think, smile, and sometimes weep. While the subtitle alludes to this being a story about West Point on the eve of the Civil War, it turns out to be much more. The deft interplay between the three days before the first battle of Bull Run and the events of the preceding year at West Point is surrounded by a broader treatment of American history and enriched by the infusion of seemingly unrelated facts and events. Well, this story obviously uh, sets the stage for some big decisions that these West Point cadets have to make on the eve of the Civil War, a very, uh, I'm sure, stressful time in their lives. Why all the interest, Rich? Why did you want to write this book? Well, Steve, I am a West Pointer. And like most West Pointers, I feel like I owe so much to the Academy. It taught me to be a leader, a leader of character, and to live out uh, its motto of duty, honor, and country. And I wanted to leave a legacy for West Point uh, with a story that told a piece of the West Point story that has never been told, this piece uh, surrounding the beginning of the Civil War. So it takes place between mid-August 1860 and late July 1861. Why those dates? This is a time frame, uh, a span of 11 months that encompasses summer encampment at West Point, the first semester at West Point, and the second semester, and then, of course, concludes with the actual Battle of Bull Run. And it's during this time that, leading up to the war, that the country is in turmoil, the air is electric with confrontation. We have Federalists on one side and states' rights activists on the other, and fire eaters on one side. That's the uh, name given by Northerners to Southern secessionists, and then we have abolitionists on the other side, and we have a Republican platform that's prohibiting the extension of slavery into the new territories. All of this plays against the this class of 1861, which has uh, 50 members, and this is their last year at West Point, and they're obviously composed of northern and southern cadets. And so uh, across this time frame, we see history unfold. We see Lincoln elected. We see South Carolina secede. And through these flashbacks, these flashbacks in the days leading up to the Battle of Bull Run, we experience a... Initially, an idyllic time during summer encampment, and then a time that just grows incredibly in the emotion and the tension that leads to to war. A lot of turmoil at West Point, and you say your characters are real. All the characters in the book actually are at West Point at this time? That is correct. There are one or two minor characters that I created in my own mind, but the characters are real. The characters were defined in an incredibly 
detailed fashion by an author, Mary Elizabeth Sargent, in some non-fictional material. She wrote two books about the class of 1861 and class of 1862. Well, in both of these books, she defines the individual characteristics of the individuals. She includes the, there, there were class albums, and in these albums that had photographs of the cadets, she was also able to glean information about the, the quirks of the cadets, who their friendships were with and how they reacted to situations and from their demerit records found out what made them tick in terms of antiques and just what it was like to be a college kid in a military academy at that time in history. So the characters are real. All the cadets are real. There's some non-fictional characters otherwise, but the listener will, I think, take great heart in the fact that they're, this story is about real people. Well, I think everyone would understand a class at a military academy, you, unity would be the one of the key elements of the, the theme of, of the class. I mean, that, that is so important that dedication to each other in the military and here this is tearing them apart and your principal protagonist john pelham of alabama tell us about him and how he dealt with all of that john pelham and he's a man from the state of alabama was a man for all seasons a man for any age and even though he was from the south he was the most popular man in the class he's my protagonist He's the Academy's best horseman. He's strikingly handsome, but he's not perfect, and he's inclined at times not to follow Academy rules. He makes a, an incredible protagonist. He's, he's vulnerable, and as a natural leader, he distinguishes himself, and I would just say this going forward beyond the story. During the Civil War, time and again, he received praise from Jeb Stewart, Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee for his uh, incredible battlefield leadership and the things he was able to accomplish. And he was the same kind of man back at, at West Point. One of John Pelham's close friends at the Academy was a famous military man that we all have heard about, George Custer. Yes, George Custer and John Pelham were actually best friends. This is confirmed by, by facts. They were in the same cadet company. Custer was one year behind Pelham. They roomed across the hall from each other in the cadet barracks. And Custer was the best horseman in his class, just like Pelham was the best horseman in the class of 1861. And they both shared the dubious distinction of having the most demerits in their respective classes. So how many of these cadets were considered this band of brothers that were torn over this whole issue of secession of the states? Within the class of 1861, about 15 were Southerners. About 15 left the academy to head south and serve the Confederacy and to face their best friends in the war that would follow. 
Now tell us about, let's see, her name from Philadelphia, Clara Bolton. She plays a very important part in this. Is she a fictional character or is she the real thing? Clara is actually a fictional character. She is representative of someone that is uh, evidenced in some of the letters that I reviewed, but she is, her name is fictional. Uh, she is a very special woman. She's in her last year at the college on Long Island, and I have her and five of her college classmates spending a week at West Point for an enchanting stay at the West Point Hotel. And during this time, she and her friends attend the cadet dances or hops that are held Monday night, Wednesday night, and Friday night. This is a very exciting time for the cadets, and this gal is every bit the match for our protagonist, John Pelham. And she and Pelham have a very, very unique relationship. And does she play a part in his thinking about all that's going on? I'm sure she's very opinionated. She absolutely does. She challenges the concept of slavery. Pelham, uh, and this is fact, came from a family that had a plantation, had 50 slaves, and so within the context of the story, we have Clara bringing out the reality of what all that meant to have slaves, how they were treated, what role they played in Southern society. Very, very interesting dialogue takes place between Pelham and Clara in connection with slavery. Now, a great debate occurs in the story, and this debate is moderated by John Pelham over whether a state has the right to secede. That's right. That, of course, was the firm belief of the South. The South believed that for just cause, and they believed they had just cause, that they, like any state, had the right to secede. And in December 1860, just prior to its seceding from the Union, South Carolina produced a document entitled The Declaration of the Immediate Causes Which Induce and Justify the Secession of South Carolina from the Federal Union. And it is not surprising that if you read this document, you see a close similarity to our Declaration of Independence from Great Britain. And, of course, this, this uh, issue of the times, a very dramatic and def divisive, uh, divisive issue of the times, you say relates to a lot of what's going on today, what's currently going on in our country with a lot of the division uh, amongst the people over what direction we should be going. Absolutely. There's a striking similarity. There are issues today that are not much different than what we faced, what the country faced back on the eve of the Civil War. We had an, an expanding federal government and a perceived shrinking of states' rights, the rights of individual states, their sovereignty, their ability to look after their own citizens. And we see a restriction, perceived or otherwise, of individual freedoms for the people of today, uh, their right to pursue happiness uh, unencumbered uh, versus the perceived right of others who are not pursuing the happiness uh, to receive it as an entitlement. 
the entitlement programs that that uh, we're dealing with in this current day are in many ways financially hamstringing our country. Were these cadets at that time, were they coerced or uh, threatened in any way if they left? What would happen to them if they left and, and went to fight for the South? No, not at all. And this is documented. There was uh, great respect, great respect by the administration within the Corps of Cadets itself that each individual simply had to make a choice. And it was only reasonable that Southern cadets, if their state seceded, would want to go home. It was not difficult for any anyone in that setting to understand that home demanded uh, a decision that where the home was was where that individual had to go. That's where their loyalty was centered, and they were entitled to that kind of loyalty. Entitled and granted. Well, it sounds like a fascinating look at a time when there was so much emotions flying about, and especially when you put that kind of strain and stress upon friends and upon friends in the military, as we alluded to before, of the importance of unity in the military. Uh, Sounds like a great read. We appreciate it, Rich. Well, thank you very much, Steve. How do we get your book? My publisher is iUniverse, and you can obtain the book through the iUniverse website or through the other major bookseller websites, but you can also find it on my website, and that is richardbarlowadams.com. And on my website, uh, listeners can find out more about the book, about me, and read what others have said about the book. Well, thank you for being with us on iUniverse Radio, Rich. And thank you, Steve. That was Richard Adams. He is the United States Military Academy at West Point, class of 1967, and the author of his book, The Parting, a story of West Point on the eve of the Civil War. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.